Hello and welcome back to The Equilibrium. This podcast is brought to you by the UNSW ECHOSOC Publications team. In this episode, we'll continue with part two of our interview with economist Anna Wilson from Frontier Economics. We'll be exploring an economic take on the current climate crisis. So sit back and enjoy, and we hope you learn a thing or two. As always, feel free to let us know your thoughts. Um, I've actually heard, uh, not that I've done it personally, but I've heard that one can now purchase a parking spot and, and rent that out as a form of actually uh, earning income. Have you heard much about that in terms of how that's affecting um, the share economy or how that's creating new parking solutions? It's, I mean, it's great, isn't it? Essentially, it means that um, that we're better utilising all available assets by sharing them. And that's all that the ride-sharing economy is largely doing, enabling you to share assets so that you could more efficiently use them collectively. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. E- even people's driveways, I've, I've noticed um, that people who, who have space, which is quite important in, I guess, metropolitan areas where there really is limited parking available. If someone's got a driveway that's empty during the day, why not share it out, um, earn a bit of money, allow someone to make their trip a little bit easier to, um, in terms of getting to work? And it just allows, I guess, that concept of allocative efficiency to work and everyone benefits overall. Speaking of um, parking and traffic flow and forecasting, um, I know, Anna, that you've written an article about the challenges of traffic forecasting. And in that article, you talk about the intricacies of how to forecast tolls. You mentioned that there can be a slow initial uptake of toll roads because uh, it takes time for commuters to adjust and there are potential delays in opening certain exits um, can you talk to us more about the role of a, of the of an economist in an infrastructure project like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, with sort of major new road investment, obviously, as you can imagine, these are quite complex in terms of how uh, to forecast demand for the road itself, and also to look at the impacts on surrounding roads. I guess a a sort of challenge, I think, um, that's sort of not present in some of the other sectors where um, we do a lot of forecasting work more generally. In relation to roads, forecasting is extraordinarily difficult because um, there are so many substitute options for your travel. (laughs) So um, if you build a new road between two locations, that doesn't mean you capture the demand for travel between those locations because already alternate routes. Um, you can also affect people's decisions to travel at all. If it's faster, you actually induce demand on certain routes. Um, and similarly, you've got for toll roads a price, which then has a sort of impact on potentially dampening demand on a certain on a certain road. So it's it's particularly complex. And actually, in terms of the forecasting for travel demand, that is actually something that there are specialists, it's actually an engineering task by and large. So traffic modelling is is mostly done by engineers. um, Yeah, under what they call a four-step model, which basically goes through a process of saying, right, what's the generalised cost of travel depending on all of these options? Um, It kind of allocates trips across different modes and then it presumes something around 
you know, increases you might get by influencing the cost of travel, either by making the trip faster, so you use less petrol, or by making the trip um, um, faster, so it induces demand. So they basically work through all of this. I think the challenge is that the inputs to that modelling is actually where economists strangely have more of an influence. So, so talking about um, elasticity of demand, that's actually an input to these processes where they need to establish what's likely to happen. And I think the, the, the modelling of that is quite basic at the moment. So um, I guess where we're involved tends to be in relation to that, looking at um, elasticities, which might be um, cross-price elasticities because there might be alternate ways you could go. Basically, the main, I think the main part that's sort of forgotten is around um, how people value time saved which in many of these models is um, a little bit clunky and, and quite low. <laughs> um, and indeed how people value the reliability of travel, which is almost mm. as important. So you might value having a shorter trip, um, but you probably value equally as much being certain about how much that time that trip will take. And I think we all intrinsically know that, which is if you're thinking about starting on a journey, um, you might think to yourself, do I need to allow 15 minutes extra because of the fact that it could take 15 minutes extra? Um, and so that uncertainty can be as important as as the actual average time itself. And, and so a lot of those complexities that kind of are obvious to economists are not built into these models. Um, and so... So while the actual task of forecasting tends to be done from an engineering perspective, where we're involved is typically to say, does that make sense? Does that does that actually um, represent what we know people will do and what we know people will value? And how could we how could we um, adapt these models so that so that they take that into account? Yeah, I think that's quite an interesting point because speaking on the topic of travel time and, and people's behaviour, I think culture is actually a big factor that plays into people's decisions on that front. Um, so working professionals would have to have a very much a different sense of time and the scarcity of time to someone um, who works near where they live, for example, or um, has a casual job or is only working part time. And all of those things um, are probably factors that you would consider in, in your data collection. Yeah, indeed. And you can see how it's a very intensive it's actually quite an intensive data exercise. Um, yeah, one that's that's sort of underestimated. It's improving all the time. It's actually an area of that particularly um, the academia that's improving over time. How do we value people's time and particularly mm. time in traffic, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is different from time sitting, you know, uh, maybe having a coffee in a comfortable <laughs> area while you wait for an Uber. That time is actually Definitely. distinctly different from time spent behind a wheel getting frustrated. And oh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you value those things differently. I, I think I would Definitely. liken time in traffic to, to time spent waiting on my food to be microwaved or time spent doing a plank at the gym. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Great. Yeah, it must be very interesting for you to work at the, I guess, intersection of economics and engineering. Um, yeah, um, so I guess now we're going to shift gear a little bit. So a topic that a lot of young people are quite like interested in, especially university students, would be like 
the environmental side of things and how economics can really use, be used to shape that. Um, so I guess our next question for you was how can economic policies help with the shift away from coal mining um, and towards more renewable sources of energy? It's a good question, isn't it? Because in a sense, um, the real, I would say the sort of basic and somewhat depressing answer to that question is probably not at all. Um, and but what? But I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> so let me clarify that. I think for a large, to a large extent, um, the shift away from coal mining has happened and is happened and will happen regardless of anything that we do. <laughs> and so I guess that's a good news story. Um, yeah. uh, in terms of whether you need government policy to encourage that, it's not actually that clear that you do. I mean, we're certainly finding that um, uh, many of the mine expansions that have been proposed and talked about probably will never happen. It's, it, it's one of those discussions where if you think back five years ago to what people were forecasting and thinking um, might be required, those forecasts have proved completely wrong. And I think, you know, serious expansion um, and growth in coal mining is just not a thing because fundamentally that's been driven by um, demand, overseas demand, not Australian demand, and much of that demand is starting to dry up. Um, mm. I think, you know, probably something that um, I don't, I think this shift has occurred without the sort of general public fully recognising it. And that's fundamentally that the cheapest way of getting energy is no longer coal. Um, mm. So it's not, it's not, you don't necessarily need to discourage people from, um, uh, from coal fired power stations. It's not a thing anymore. You know, they, they won't be developed. New ones won't be put in place in Australia, largely because that's not, the most economic way of doing it anymore. And that's got nothing to do with government policy. Mm. <laughs> um, it's just just the economics, the fundamental, you know, it's just cheaper to build a wind farm. It's cheaper to build a solar farm. <laughs> so in a sense, the good news is we don't need to worry about it. Um, that shift mm. will occur. Uh, I think where governments have been, and I would say successive governments, have uh, affected this sort of natural shift that's occurred is actually by by flip-flopping um, in their mm. policies in the energy sector. And they really, that sort of behaviour has a big impact on investment. So if you don't know what uh, revenue recovery you're going to get from an investment that you make based on government policies, your natural response is to delay making a decision. And, and changing policies has been as damaging as whatever policy they might otherwise have put in place. Basically, this sort of constant, yes, we're putting in a carbon tax. No, we're not. We're doing carbon trading. Yes, we are. Um, uh, we're going to encourage investment in this particular technology. Wait, no, we're not. That whole sort of inability to stick to something is actually the far more damaging part of that. Mm. It's definitely been interesting to hear about the like government's differing responses to climate change and like the different policy settings that have been put out. Um, yeah, I guess it's it's very optimistic to hear that the economy, like the natural economic decision, is to I guess err towards more renewable energy sources rather than like I guess coal mining and gas that sort of thing. So very yeah. interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's good news, right? The, the, it, it, throughout this whole period, we've the sort of at a government level, it's 
policy making has been ineffective. But the good news is it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> um, so uh, take heart from that. And I guess mm -hmm. I think the challenge going forward is actually going to be around how to decarbonise uh, transport. That will be the next thing. Mm. Um, in a sense, it all it has to come after the um, decarbonisation of sort of energy more generally, particularly if we're sort of moving to electric vehicles, then actually an electric vehicle isn't really all that beneficial until the energy within the grid is actually uh, renewable. Mm. Because until that point, an electric vehicle is still drawing off a grid that generates um that generates greenhouse gases. But that time is is quickly coming as renewables increase in the grid. We really need to start shifting sort of the transport side of things to actually get to net zero. So I'm kind of excited about that because I think we're seeing an increasing policy shift towards that. We're talking yeah. about it. That's a good start. <laughs> hmm. um, but the, the area where we need policy is in terms of um, the actual use of like electric vehicles and the, the the way that we get our electricity to run those vehicles is that is that what you're saying Anna? Yeah I think well I think two things I think they're probably within the energy um, grid itself uh, governments need to start focusing on how to ensure stability of supply um, and stability of the grid because uh, you can have investment you know with investment in renewables generation locations are moving um, and you know you there's definitely a sort of baseload element that you need to consider and ensure is protected. And I think um, increasingly sort of government policy is focused on that, how to ensure that we have stable, reliable energy supply with a large number, with a large proportion of renewables. Um, so that's kind of like the new, new debate, where do we need to invest in the grid itself as opposed to electricity generation to sort of ensure that stability. So that's good. And then I think the second part is how do we decarbonise outside the electricity grid itself um, and that is that is actually going to be harder um, because it involves sort of uh, shifting people for new tech to new technologies um, and reforming a whole bunch of regulations uh, that cover uh, you know the cars that we buy trucks um, you know how you recharge which cars can be imported, how much emissions they can generate. Um, it's sort of, uh, it's been sort of largely forgotten till now. I think it's just been a bit of a side bit, um, but it's increasingly sort of becoming important. That's great to hear. Um, so I guess in your own personal experience with your clients, have you seen any like noticeable shifts towards the use of renewable technology? Um, Yes, yes. So I think um, probably as consultants, um, we can we get to see a lot of the new new policy discussions that are emerging um, before they're kind of publicly announced. And I would definitely say we are increasingly being asked questions on this. Um, you know, and the type of the type of questions will relate to. Um, how do we ensure our policies, say, for encouraging um, net zero in the transport sector? How do we make them technology neutral? Um, what's the best way of doing them? I mean, for example, you could ban all um, uh, conventional vehicles and force people 
to move to EVs or you could subsidise it or you could assist by building complementary infrastructure like charging. And so we're increasingly being asked which of these options is best, which of these policy options is best um, from different departments and Australian bodies. And so that's a good sign. That means they're starting to think about it. Should we, um, you know, change our fuel excise arrangements? Um, those things are starting to come up more and more. And I think that implies that governments are taking it quite seriously. So that's good. And I think we see it in aviation as well. Um, sort of how can we move to sustainable aviation fuels? Uh, is there sufficient supply of these fuels? Uh, we're also increasingly getting asked questions about sort of um, hydrogen and does that have a role to play in transport? So um, I would imagine you know, in the next few years, there'll be lots of policies um, brought out in that space. Um, yeah, thanks for that, Anna. That's really good to hear that we're on track and we're exploring different options and that you're able to say from your first experience that clients are aware of the space we're operating in. Um, I guess our last question for you, just to wrap up this podcast, is um, one that's closely related to um, our experience studying as students. What advice do you have for students studying economics? Um, okay, I would probably say focus on the basics. Um, I, I remember going through my economics degree and having to, um, you know, do however many Lagrangians or <laughs> all of that stuff. And fundamentally, the most important thing that I use, I think, in terms of the toolkit day to day, is thinking about how people think and understanding those sort of core market failures. What won't the market deliver? Um, you know, really basic stuff like what would represent an externality, um, where there might be an information asymmetry, uh, where there could be search costs that are affecting people's decision-making. Um, those sort of really core 101 basic economics um, are really important for identifying where there's a problem and where, um, in our case, we're focused on where you might need to intervene to address that problem. Hmm. And um, and it's, it's, it's simple but effective. <laughs> the rest of the stuff, you can read it if you need to. Um, <laughs> but the, the sort of, I think the core skill is around knowing which tools exist and when you should draw on them. And you can get a good, a good chunk of what you need to know from uh, Economics 101, I reckon. <laughs> well, that's some really great advice. Thank you for that, Anna, and thank you so much for um, joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And that brings to a close our podcast with Frontier Economics. Many thanks to Anna Wilson for joining us. And from wherever you're listening, we hope you learned a thing or two about transport, the environment, and an economic perspective. That's all from us. Till next time.